The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. This is from Master Dogen's Theorended Koan Shobagenzo. Zen Master Dog of Mount Yunju was once asked by a government official who had brought an offering. It said that the World Honored One had intimate speech, and Mahakai Shapa did not hide it. What is the World Honored One's intimate speech? Yunju said, Officer. The officer said, Yes. Yunju said, Do you understand? The officer said, No, I don't. Yunju said, If you don't understand it, that is the World Honored One's intimate speech. If you do understand it, that is Mahakashapas, not hiding it. I wanted to, well, first I wanted to express my gratitude to Dadaroshi. I was thinking much about him this morning. Um, grateful for his introducing me to Dogen, which in my earlier years I wasn't always grateful for, because I <laughs> wrestled mightily with Dogen's teachings. In some ways, 14 years seems like an eternity. In other ways, it seems like a blink of an eye. In the offering this morning, normally we offer um, sweet water, cake, and tea. And this morning we offered sweet water, Lorna Dunes, and coffee, light and sweet. (laughs) And you might have caught the scent of the frankincense that I was burning, which uh, harkened back to his Catholic days. Um, He always had some of that laying around. And he assembled, or uh, along with Kaz Tanahashi, translated these 300 coins that Dogen brought back with him from China when he was training there and that Dogen used many of many of these koans in his teachings of the Shobogenzo as this fascicle, intimate speech that we're using this ango is an example of. And so he spent years working together with Kastanashi, translating just the cases, because that's all there was, the main case, and then giving talks on each and every one of them, and writing a commentary and a verse, and then giving a teisho. So that's just, and then they were published. So that's just an enormous offering in the sort of, you know, in the company of the Blue Cliff Record and the Book Serenity is really important. Very profound bodies of religious teachings that are uh, used specifically in the Zen tradition, but exist within the larger Buddhist tradition. So I'm very grateful that he did that. That fascicle begins actualizing the fundamental point. You realize the great road maintained by all Buddhas. You are like this, I am like this, keep it well, is what is revealed. We talked during the Ango Intensive about the slogan, all dharmas agree on one point, come down to one purpose. This is what Dogen is speaking about here. And there are so many ways that we speak about Buddha Dharma, not just the teachings, but sort of try and encapsulate its essential point. 
And so to liberate what has never been bound, to reveal what we discover has never been hidden, to verify, or unify rather, what has never been divided. So to an essentially, he- essentially heal all the illnesses and wounds of our delusion. So we get caught up in words and meaning, but we come to see that words and meaning don't have their own power to entangle. We get led by unskillful desires, but we realize that desires alone don't have the power to overwhelm us. Our senses are magnificent, right? And yet, Buddhism teaches that they can be seen as the thieves through which we get lost. And magnificent though they are, the realms, there are realms and worlds in which we cannot enter through the senses. That's why we sit. Our concepts are powerful, but there are things that ultimately they can't convey. And so to be liberated from our self-creating, self-clinging attachment to things and our senses and concepts, so that all of those things that we're liberating can then become really useful. So to liberate doesn't mean to liberate them and send them to their rooms never to come out, but to liberate them so they can truly be useful. Our senses, our thoughts, our desires, words and meaning. And so this koan is pointing to the koan that I spoke about a couple weeks ago, the Buddha holds up a flower, so which Zen holds up as the first transmission of the Dharma from, from the Buddha to the first generation in the body of Mahakashapa. And so there, there's an assembly, the Buddha is teaching, everyone is there, and all the Buddha does is hold up a flower. And Mahakashapa alone smiles. And the Buddha says, I have the true Dharma, the formless form of Nirvana, and now I hand it to Mahakashapa, which is an indication of having transmitted. So that is not an historical event in that sense, but it is, it is the, sort of the essence of how the Zen tradition speaks of that first transmission and how it was transmitted by the Buddha holding up a flower. And so this koan is taking that up. And Dogen, in, in, the, in the fascicle, says, those who have not heard the teachings of a true master may sit in a teaching seat and not even have dreamt of intimate language. They mistakenly say, that the passage, the world honored one has intimate language, means that he held up a flower and winked to the assembly of innumerable beings on Vulture Peak. The reason for this is that the teaching by words is shallow and limited to forms. And so the Buddha used no words but took up a flower. This was the very moment of presenting intimate language. But the assembly of innumerable beings did not understand. That is why this is a secret language, intimate speech, for the assembly of innumerable beings. Mahakashpa did not conceal it, means that he smiled when he saw the flower, as if he had already known. Nothing was concealed from him. This is a true understanding which has been transmitted from person to person. And Dogen says about this understanding There are an enormous number of people who believe in such a theory. They comprise communities all over China. What a pity. 
So now the Zen tradition says that the, the, the Dharma cannot be conveyed in words and letters. It's outside of the scriptures. That when you say the word fire, your mouth is not on fire. That the words point to the moon, but they are not the moon. Don't mistake them for the moon. So there are many teachings that speak of this. Because words are limited in meaning. They speak to our conceptual mind. They objectify. When we use language, we talk about something. So it creates a sense of distinct subject and object. But the question is, so Dogen is really challenging that. And the question is, is a word itself limited? Is a word itself, in and of itself, limited? Or is it the mind that is speaking the word? The mind that is hearing the word that is limited. Dogen goes on to say, if the world-honored one's words were shallow, based on this understanding that because words are shallow and are limited by their form, by their sound, then the, the Dharma can't be conveyed that way. Therefore, the Buddha held up a flower. So Dogen is saying, if the world-honored one's words were shallow, his holding up a flower and would also be shallow. Those who say that the, the Buddha's words are limited to forms are not truly students of the Buddha Dharma. Although they know that words have form, they don't yet know that the world-honored one does not have form. They're not, not yet free from their ordinary ways of thinking. And we might say that words, a flower, a staff, a koan, the breath, awareness, anything that we point to would also be shallow that everything in the universe would then be shallow and would be unable of communicating intimate speech, direct speech. We know that words have form, sound, shapes, meaning, but we may not yet know that the Buddha has no fixed form. And so a word, right? what we call a word, word itself is a word, right? So a word appears on a page, or it's heard from someone's mouth, like I'm speaking words right now, the ear makes contact, right? Sound is heard by the ear, so there's an object, there's a sense organ, consciousness knows that something has been heard, there's a moment of sensation, and begins to try and obtain a perception to understand what was that sound. It was a word. What did it sound like? What was the word? What does the word mean? And that this is what the skandhas point to, how we go from a moment of contact to knowing, to recognizing, to identifying. Discriminating consciousness discerns the meaning that we have been taught, right? So we learn what language is, what these words mean, how syntax puts them together and helps us to create coherent sentences so we can communicate. And then we have understanding. We come to understand things. And that in that moment of encounter, a lifetime of associations and experiences with that word, with associative words, flood in, and that all becomes part of the meaning. The word, the meaning, the experience, the one who knows, all of these exist and can be distinguished. We can talk about these things as existing, I just did. And yet what Dogen is saying is all the while the Buddha, words, sounds, hearing, meaning, knowing, don't have a fixed form. Because nothing in the universe is like this. 
is permanent, has a permanent sense of identity, has fixed characteristics, is unchanging. Words themselves are an excellent example of that. Right? To study the etymology of language, to study the history of language, is to study the evolution of words, where they began, how they changed over time, how they're used within context, within cultures, the changes. But when they seem fixed, they seem limited, right? They're limited to what that word can mean. And when the word is limited, the person using the word or hearing the word becomes limited. I was just speaking to somebody earlier about how it's one of the wonderful things about koans in particular, but really Dharma study, particularly within the Zen tradition, because it, it evolved a very particular way of using language, which is direct pointing, trying to really in a sense, use language which comes to us in a kind of limited form and use it to convey something that is limitless. And in that way, to help us to realize our own limitlessness. Because in order to hear, because if we fix the meaning of that word, that's what's so challenging about Dogen, is when we try to listen or listen to a koan or other teachings with a fixed notion of what words mean, then it's frustrating, right? Because it doesn't make sense to us. And so what's happening is we're trying to basically bring a fixed reference system. And what the speaker, what Dogen is saying, for instance, he's speaking from a mind that is not fixed. He's using language which he understands has no fixed form, which allows him to use it in expansive ways but without disregarding the meaning of the words, because otherwise, why would he use this word versus that word? And so in encountering the language, in order to really meet those teachings, we have to become more expansive. We have to loosen our mind a little bit. Dogen says, Buddha ancestors drop off all experience of body and mind. They use words to turn the Dharma wheel. This is beginning with the, Dhar- with the Buddha. <coughs> Turning the Dharma wheel means teaching. Teaching very often means expounding, using words. Dogen says, hearing these words, many people are benefited. Those who have trust in the Dharma and practice Dharma are guided in the realm of Buddhas and in the realm of going beyond Buddhas, guided through teachings. What Dogen is calling intimate speech. And so the question is, how is it that we come to benefit when we hear these teachings? Is it they themselves have power? If they themselves have the power, then anyone hearing those words would experience the same thing. Because the power, the agency is in the words. Well, we know that that's not true. We ourselves have the experience of encountering a teaching and having some understanding or maybe no understanding encountering it again and again, and then one day we, exp- we encounter it and, there's, and it lights up. The words haven't changed. And yet somehow, in that moment, they seem to have come to life. They become experienced. They enter in some way. So it can't be, the agency can't be in the words, but if it's in us, then we wouldn't need the words. We would just light up all the time. <laughs> right? 
And so what's going on? Right? So that's really looking at it from a dualistic perspective. Is it there or is it here? Where's the juice? Where do I put my attention? How do we benefit? How is it that when we hear a teaching, right, when you first encountered the Dharma, if this is how it happened for you, and you felt something, you experienced something, you felt an affinity, right? you may have felt a resonance or, or, or kind of a, a drawing in. The first time I encountered the, the taught Dharma, which is how I first encountered it, that was my experience. It's like there was something that was going on that I didn't understand, that I felt like I was in contact with, and that it, was, it seemed like it was here, but I was experiencing it here. How is that? So we can be guided in the realm of Buddha ancestors, Dogen says, and in going beyond. Because it's not just about having an experience with a teaching. Right? Isn't that nice? I'm moved. I'm inspired. Maybe I'm illuminated, but of actually enlightening not just my mind, but the whole, the, world, the whole world of minds, the mind of all sentient beings. So we can actualize the fundamental point, as Dogen says. We can understand, finally, when Dogen says, you are like this, I am like this, suchness, so that we can live it and be a benefit, not just, you know, have nice conversation about beautiful words, so that we can be in intimate contact. And so it said that the world honor one had intimate speech, and Maikai Shapa didn't hide it. What is that intimate speech? What was it? And Yunju calls out, Officer. Said, yes. And Yunju says, Do you understand? So the student asks a question, and the teacher calls out. And the student responds, and Yunju says, do you now understand? And that moment, that action, appears in quite a number of koans. There's a koan where Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, for many, many years, asked Mahakashapa in the, the sort of narrative of how Mahakashapa had received the robe and the bowl the robe and the orioki bowl, which was an indication of having received the transmission, which is why in the transmission that's given as one of the objects of transmission. And so he said, when you received the robe and the bowl from the Buddha, did you receive anything else? And Mahakashapa said, Ananda. And Ananda said, yes. And Mahakashapa said, the teaching is complete. The te show's over. A student came to another teacher and says, I'm poor and destitute, I beg you. Please help me, make me rich. And the student called out, a monk. The student said, yes. The teacher said, having tasted three cups of the finest wine, how is it you say your, stips, your lips are still dry? So what is this calling and answering? When the north wind blows, the branches bend to the south and autumn leaves float lazily to the ground without knowing. When snowflakes fall, they fall no place but here. I am just thus, you are just thus. And so Yunju says, do you understand? The officer says, no, I don't. Calling, answering, 
Do you understand? No, I don't. The teacher is saying, that's it. What, you, what you're seeking, that's it. And the student is saying, I don't understand. And Yunju said, if you don't understand, that's the Buddha's intimate speech. If you do understand, that's my Akashapa, not hiding it. Dogen says, aspire to investigate these words for many eons. So that should comfort us when we <laughs> don't understand at first glance, right? <laughs> he himself understands, right? This is, this is challenging. It's challenging because the door is not open. It's challenging become, because that direct moment, that direct experience, so simple, so bare, has to find its way through a veil and a haze and clouds, all of these images that are used to describe the sort of web of our habitual ways of thinking and experiencing and knowing. So he says, aspire to investigate these words for many eons. Yunju's words, if you don't understand it, are the Buddha's intimate language. Not understanding is not the same as going blank. Not understanding does not mean that you don't know. By saying, if you don't understand it, Yunju is encouraging practice without words. Investigate this. And so practicing without words. And so we sit on the cushion. Not to stop the mind from thinking, but to allow the mind to return to a natural state of rest in which it lets go of that habitual, incessant thinking, the veil. To practice going beyond the confines and limitations that that seems to create, to impose on us. So that when you're hot or cold or hungry or scared or joyful or deeply moved, we don't miss it. How can we explain such a moment? Right? Language tries to capture it, right? to capture it and put it in a bottle. Right? How many times have you been sitting on the cushion and had some experience and immediately start thinking, okay, how am I going to describe, how am I going to tell my friend about this? <laughs> right? I want to tell them. Right? So hard to just stay with it. Allow that. We want to put it into something solidify it, preserve it. It's hard to trust letting what is limitless be limitless, what is boundless be boundless. And so we generally have to experience that over and over again until we realize the fruitlessness of that. He says, not understanding is not the same as going blank. It's not the same as being confused. Being confused in confusion, there's anxiety, there's searching for something. There's not being sure about where we're standing and wanting to find someplace solid to stand. This is not that. In this, there is ease. There is sufficiency. There is no grasping. Going blank is like a state of dullness. It's not alert. It's not aware. It's not alive. That's why we... There's so much, it's important that when we're sitting, we're not cultivating that. We're not trying to become blank. 
like a dead thing. That can seem like a relief in contrast to just being wound up or agitated or, you know, whacked out. But from a Buddhist perspective, it, there's no life there. It's not actually helping us. That has no capacity to, to integrate off the cushion. Not understanding does not mean that you don't know. Very interesting. How then do you know? What kind of knowing is he talking about in not understanding? This is not just playing with words. This is talking both about what we experience in our meditation and also about how to be in a world that is not bound up and tethered to ideas. Because we see what happens when we get tethered to ideas. They become dogmatic. We become dogmatic. Words become the vehicles, sort of the banner of going to war. The ideas within them, our attachment to them. Right? Abraham Lincoln recognized that in the Civil War, soldiers on both sides believed in the same God and were praying to the same God for our side to win. How do you reconcile that? What is to know in not understanding intimately? Beyond knowing is knowing what covers heaven and earth, that it does not exist within past, present, and future. It cannot be preserved or possessed. It's never insufficient. It's never in excess, which is why it's difficult to allow that natural mind to come forth, because in the beginning it's disconcerting. It can feel like being lost. It can provoke anxiety, right? Because where am I? Right? Am I going to fall down into some dark hole and never come out? This is like Alice through the looking glass, but no one to tell the story. And so in moments like that, when I had my own anxiety, I would think, is this some sort of mind control? Like a, you know, a drugless drug trip? You know? that I'm going to like mess something up in my mind. And then I would think, wait a minute. I'm not controlling my mind. I'm not in a controlled mental state. I'm actually trying to let go of all of the ways in which I've been controlling my mind. And I began to think, I think what's happening is, is already there. Whatever I'm experiencing is already there. It's a more original, natural state of mind. Maybe I don't have to be afraid. I'm not making something happen. I'm in a sense allowing what I have been making happen to rest. Now, what is it? It's like, how do you know love? Right? Everybody experiences it. How do you know it? Because you have certain sensations? Because you have thoughts of love? You speak words of love? Is that, are those things love? Are they love itself? How do you know love? Well, I feel it. But what, where is it? If we opened you up, would we find a little love? <laughs> right? A little seed somewhere that was, you know, bright and shiny. Of course not. And yet we don't doubt it. So if there's something there. It seems palpable. We know when it's there. We know when it seems to be fading away or lost. We can't touch it. We, can't, we can talk about it, and Lord knows we do. <laughs> Songs, books, poems, operas, 
happy and sad. But are any of those love itself? Dogen says, there are intimate words when they encounter an intimate person. Another translation is secret words, which is kind of interesting. Because it implies that there's a secret. Maybe it's being kept from you. I told the story that years ago, Dadaroshi and I, <clears throat> I was with Dadaroshi as attendant in prison. He was doing Jakai, giving the precepts to some of the students there. And he had his, his sort of priest's liturgy book that had Dharanis and different kinds of teachings and things that he would use. Somebody stole it, right? So when he told me about that, I said, oh, there go the secret teachings. And he looked at me and he said, no, they're still secret. <laughs> the secret is to ourselves, right? In the same way that in delusion, delusion in a way is living in a world of secrecy, a world that is always present, always calling to us, always inviting us in, washing up on our shore, but in a way is secret to us. Dogen says there are intimate words there are intimate words when they encounter an intimate person. So in order to encounter words, we talk about live words that enlighten, that illuminate, that bring us to, that inspire, that shift. That the moment when that happens is because they are encountering an intimate person. In order for words to be alive, they have to encounter a person who is alive, a mind that is alive. In a sense, that's what we're doing in practice, is tuning ourselves, tuning our minds, so that we can be so ripe in such a moment that when we encounter something that is intimate, that is alive, we know. He says, when the Buddha eye sees the unseen, then intimate action is not known by the self or others, it's not outside, it's not distant, it's not a thing. But the intimate self alone knows it. You know. Each intimate other goes beyond understanding. Since intimacy surrounds you, it is fully intimate and it is half intimate. Isn't that interesting? It is fully intimate, of course. Includes everything, but it's half intimate? The intimacy he's talking about permeates every atom, every particle, everything. It is complete within the whole. It is complete within the half. Dadaroshi used to love to use the metaphor of a hologram. That if you take a, a film, a holographic film, that creates a three-dimensional image, and then you cut it in half, you cut it in quarters, you cut it, reduce it, reduce it, then when you shine light through it, it still shows the whole, the entire Things may appear small or large, perfect, flawed, young or old, beautiful or ugly. But intimate words and actions, the intimate mind does not know how to discriminate. It does not accept or reject. I am like this. You are like this. Dharoshi said, the intimate speech of the Buddha is the original face of all Buddhas. Drawing from that koan, what is your original face before your parents were born? before you were even an inkling of an idea, your original face, that is not the result of your mother and father, your parents. It cannot be given, 
nor can it be received. It is not inherent, nor is it newly acquired. In intimacy, the 10,000 things have merged and so cannot be spoken of. And yet, when we speak of it, Dogen is saying, we are not diverging from that. If you do, do understand it, that is Mahakai Shapa's not hiding it. Dado says, in understanding, heaven and earth are separated and nothing is hidden. Well, that seems strange because we think when things are separated, then they become confusing and diluted and not clear. In understanding, heaven and earth are separated, seen as they are, and nothing is hidden. There is distinction. There are the 10,000 things. There is you and me. And in that, nothing is hidden. And that's what we strive to reveal. The separation is free of delusion. Conflicts arise from believing that words, meaning, thoughts, actions have an inherent, intrinsic nature. They are. And so then it makes sense that there are base words and thoughts and holy words and thoughts. That there are ideas that hold sacred truths and must be defended. And there are beliefs that hold false truths and must be destroyed. Because those things have that power. And having that power, then false truths threaten sacred truths. People who are seen as being holders or advocates of that which is seen as a threat must be dealt with. Dogen says intimate language. That's why from a Buddhist perspective, every conflict, every conflict, small or large, is unnecessary, is a construction, is something we are actively doing. We are creating a conflict. There is a situation that needs our attention. Something needs to be worked out. There is not enough water. There is not enough food. There is a temple that is sacred to different religions. The conflict, that's the state. That's the existence of something. The state, the the conflict, is what we do with that basic reality that stands by itself in our minds. That's why we sit and study this mind, the source of heaven and the source of hell. Dogen says, intimate language, intimate heart, intimate action in Buddha Dharma are not like this. When you encounter a person, you invariably hear intimate language and speak intimate language, even before we've realized it. When you know yourself, then you know intimate action. So when we're practicing, we're practicing an intimate action to come into intimate contact with ourself, the self. Which is not just, we can think of that as just, oh, get to know me. I'm going to get to know me, right? I'm going to get to know my, my stories and my personality. That's not excluded, but it's not what we're coming into intimate contact with. 
when we react to words, what is the power of that reaction? Where, where is it? Where is it happening? From a Buddhism, this is an essential question. Because in that reaction, we act. We think, we speak, we act. We create karma that has effect. It creates hell, it creates heaven. So to understand, to get to the root of that, to understand the mind of that reaction. And of course, words have history. They carry, in a sense, our karma. They don't, but we impute that into them. Generations of good or evil, of helping or hurting. I was listening to, a, again, listening to a, an interview Ta-Nehisi Coates was offering at a college. And a, a white, young white student stood up and said that she listens to a lot of hip-hop with her friends of different racial persons. And that a lot of times in the songs, the songs use the N-word. And she said, I know that I, I shouldn't use that word. I don't use that word as a white person. But I don't know how to explain to my other white friends that they shouldn't either. And so he said, well, you know, words exist within a context. They don't have meaning without a context. And so certain words have beneficial power and meaning within certain communities. In other, outside those communities, those same words can be hurtful and destructive. And he went on to say, you know, for you to not be able to say that word can be like, well, why don't I get to say that word? Everybody else gets to say that word. Why not me? And he said, you're just used to living in a world where you don't have to accommodate yourself, right? You don't have to be inconvenienced. He said, people that are not like you have to accommodate themselves every single day to the words that you use, to your language, to your culture. You're just not used to it. So you're just getting a little bit of an experience of what it's like. We see words have no fixed forms, and they have impact. The meaning is not inherent, and yet when they're were used, they can injure, harm. When we look at that from a dualistic perspective, it's like, well, what's going on? Where is it? The Buddha said, we'll never fully resolve it in that way, by dividing by separating, by creating a false sense of inside and outside. So Dogen says, intimate means close and inseparable. There is no gap. And so that's why in practice we have to come in close. We have to see all of the ways our mind separates, creates separation that becomes solidified, that is solidified in our mind. How do we know? Watch your feelings. Watch your emotions. Study your attachments. Those are evidence. Those are showing us the ways in which we have created a a solid and fixed sense of something in that and something in this. And that's a good thing to see that, right? Because that's showing us where we need to bring our attention. Where do we need to release our grasp? What do we need to hold in an open hand. So it doesn't mean have no opinion about anything. You know, we, we can't practice without knowing right and wrong. 
we can't practice meditation without having a sense of what is meditation and what's not. Am I meditating in accord with the teachings or not? We have to be able to reflect and make decisions and judgments. But can we do it without solidifying, turning things into an absolute truth? We were talking, uh, Trela Kyabgan said, it's not about deciding whether you are a good or bad person. That's not the point. That's not the question. That's not the, the issue that is being taken up in Buddhism. It's how am I manifesting in this moment based on all of my past actions, karma, and the conditions of this moment and this mind and body. And is that helpful? Is it helpful to me? Is it helpful to you? That's the bodhisattva path. It's very difficult to do that if we're continually navigating around fixed mountains of friends and enemies. Intimate means close and inseparable. There is no gap. Intimacy embraces Buddhas. It embraces you. It embraces the self. It embraces action. It embraces generations. It embraces merit. It embraces intimacy. Everything, in other words. And the pivot point is that intimate means close and inseparable. And so when we see the separation, the gap, the distance, that's what we're trying to close. And it doesn't mean, okay, you two who are fighting need to come and stand very close together. It's not necessarily about physical distance or the ideas of distance that we have in our mind. This is how we can become intimate in our mind with someone who is no longer alive, with someone who we will never meet, with a situation that is so large that it's hard to even hold it in our mind. This is how we can become intimate, because it's not about what can be measured. You know, this is why dukkha, our dogmatic views, our attachments, our holding grudges, our prejudices, and so on, are so painful. Because they're the symptoms, they're like the, the, the sort of inevitable consequences of that gap. Right? Why is it that every, it seems like every spiritual tradition has some story, some narrative about something originally that was whole and has become divided, fragmented, lost. You got kicked out of the garden. And now we're trying to find our way back. Like, what's going on? Like, is there a fundamental, universal experience that we have of somehow being separate, there being a gap, a fundamental gap that never gets closed by clothing or cars or sex or power or good food, good friends, good stuff (laughs) that's good, but it doesn't actually close that gap. And that every people seems to have made contact with that in some way and, and, and have sort of a way of speaking about it, a way of understanding, well, what is the source of that? What are we trying? How did that happen? Who did it? How do we get back? And what the Buddha said, the whole thing is really just a story. We were never lost. And so why, when we turn against ourselves, we were talking about defilement and desecration. 
it's kind of defiling. It's a kind of defilement against ourselves. We're we're turning against ourselves, which is why it's painful. And maybe that pain is calling us in. It's saying, "Yeah, it hurts. Don't ignore that. Don't numb out. Don't distract yourself from it." Isn't that a big part of what we're learning how to do? Is actually get close to it, not freak out, not add a bunch of meaning to it. See it as a calling in. It's not a sign that something's wrong. It's a sign that, that we're being called home. And we have to take lots of steps, it seems, to realize that you never had to move. <laughs> so we sit still. <laughs> and isn't that why then every moment in which there's any release, any relaxation, any diminishment, any of what of, of, uh, with something held, of, of something that is binding, in some way is pleasurable, is joyful, is brings forth something that is affirming. It's like we're getting this feedback. Dogen says, clearly study this. Know that intimacy comes forth at the place where the person, you, myself, become a Buddha at the moment when understanding takes place. Such a person is an authentic heir of the enlightened path. Right now is the very moment when you are intimate with yourself. Already, he says, intimate with others. You are intimate with Buddha ancestors, intimate with other beings, with the whole phenomenal world. This being so, this intimacy is constantly renewing itself. You never use it up. It can never be exhausted. Intimacy renews intimacy because the teaching of practice enlightenment is the way. It is intimacy that pierces Buddha ancestors. Thus, intimacy pierces intimacy. It's like a positive feedback. It's like talking directly, true words, intimate language, to ourselves. It's like meeting ourselves again for the first time everywhere. Dadaroshi's poem, one had intimate speech, the other did not conceal it. The world honored one held up a flower. Makashipa smiled. No gaps. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.